0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in July. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For 12,000 years, people have left a rich record of their experiences in what is now Utah's Capitol Reef National Park. In The Capitol Reef Reader, a new book out from University of uh, Utah Press, award-winning author and photographer Stephen Trimble collects the best of his writing. Of this writing, brother, 160 years worth of words that capture the spirit of the park and its surrounding landscape in personal narratives, philosophical rifts, and historical and scientific records. Included in the volume are uh, Clarence Dutton, Wallace Stegner, Edward Abbey, Craig Childs, Ellen Malloy. Uh, the list goes on and on. It includes uh, Chip Ward as well, who. Uh, along with uh, Stephen Trimble, uh, joins us on the program uh, today. Stephen Trimble began his uh, writing and photography uh, career as a park ranger, including a season at Capitol Reef National Park. His books include Bargaining for Eden, Lasting Light, and the Sagebrush Ocean. Stephen Trimble, welcome back to the program.
1: Hi, Tom. I'm delighted to be here, as always.
0: Great to have you. And uh, I want to read, uh, I assume this is your introduction, Stephen, of uh, Chip Ward. Uh, Chip Ward made his first landing in the West at Pleasant Creek in the 1970s. In subsequent years, he drove a bookmobile, led campaigns to make polluters accountable, co-founded Heal Utah, became assistant director of Salt Lake City Library System, then retired to Torrey, where his Western journey had uh, begun. Chip Ward, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thanks for uh, joining us. So this is, a, this is a part of a uh, series, and we talked about this in an earlier episode of the program, Stephen Trimble. Uh, so this is the Capitol Reef Reader. Um, I want to i uh, will just read the opening sentence um, from your introduction. Rock. No other word can precede it. Why?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good fundamental question to start with, Tom. Um, I can't help but begin with those words, because that's what Capitol Reef National Park is all about. You know, I've been thinking about how to how to explain why there's so rich a literature from Capitol Reef. Uh, you know, I was asked to pull together the very best writing about this national park for the Capitol, Capitol Reef Reader in this National Park Reader series that the University of Utah Press is publishing. And it turns out that Capitol Reef has probably more great stuff written about it than all the other national parks in, in the state. And I think it's because... In part, there's such a wide variety of landscapes. You know, the the water pocket fold is what defines the park. You know, that 100-mile-long wrinkle in the earth's surface where the rocks dip, tipping up all of those formations. So there is this incredibly rich variety of erosional forms. And the park is along the water pocket fold, but abutting the park on either side are these beautiful big mountains, Boulder Mountain and the Henrys, the Henry Mountains. And I define Capitol Reef kind of loosely in the, in the book. I don't stick to those straight lines on the map that define the National Park, but I think of Capitol Reef country really as the length of the water pocket fold, the views from the, the incredible scenic Highway 12 that goes between Torrey and Boulder over Boulder Mountain looking out over the park toward the Henry Mountains. And so that's an awful lot of variety. It's thousands of feet of vertical relief. It's all those different rock formations. And uh, that's why I can start the book with no other word but rock.
0: Chip Ward, you write, I want, I want to read this sentence from your essay. Rocks carry aromas that tell you whether their hot, cold, or wet. They carry sound absorbed and echoed, so the voice of each canyon is different from another. You go on to say loving a canyon completely requires time and patience. Wait for all her moods and nuances to appear and reveal themselves to all the senses. I think... Uh,
2: yeah, that's, um, that was my experience coming from an, an Eastern environment where uh, you have classic scenes of alpine beauty and mountains and verdant pastures and so forth. I think Capitol Reef requires a little bit more patience. You have to wait for uh, its moods to appear... It's all about tone and color and weather and, and the seasons.
0: And uh, it takes patience.
2: Yes, very much so. Um, it's, uh, I, I know that you don't have to have patience to enjoy the, the park. We certainly get a lot of visitors <clears throat> that come through, and they love the park, even though they only spend a couple of days here. Uh, I've been fortunate in my life to spend a lot more time here, as Stephen has too.
0: I want to uh, get from you, uh, each of your first impressions. I'll start with Chip Ward. You write about this in, in the essay in the book. Um, you describe, um, let's see, Walden Pond paradigm of Easterners. And I guess you had that.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I've been in Utah now for about 45 years, but I grew up back east. Uh, our camping trips were to the Adirondack Mountains. I did a lot of hunting and fishing and camping with my dad, and it was all in eastern woodlands. And uh, you really don't. You have a lot of biosphere there, but you don't have a lot of geology. The thing that was really unique when I came to Capitol Reef was that the the, the land was sort of laid bare, and you could. Uh, it, it was humbling, really, to look at the layers and to understand the the immense amount of time that went into creating a place like Capitol Reef.
0: So uh, you <laughs> love a couple of stories in in your essay, Chip Ward. Um, you know, I've been to some of this country, and I could, uh, you know, if I put my mind on it, I could see how this could be overwhelming. And you talk about it, there's a legend, we don't know if it's true. Um, I mean, it is true that Ephraim Hanks and his first wife were, were up there, right?
2: Right, yeah. And the, that was in the, uh, actually in uh, at the Floral, what became known as the Floral Ranch, which is uh, down uh, on Pleasant Creek uh, at the confluence of the South Draw.
0: And Ephraim apparently cut a cut a room out of the rock, and that's where they lived the first year. And and his his wife, we hear maybe, uh, got a little delusional up there.
2: Well, that was the story that I was told. Whether it's uh, verifiable or not, I don't know. There is a uh, definitely a room cut into the side of the cliff wall farther up from the old Sleeping Rainbow Ranch, the old Floral Ranch. And uh, uh, there is a frame around it and a door with leather hinges, and that was the story. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Sometimes I suspect it was just used by somebody who was prospecting up there. Uh, but it is, a, it is a very demanding and very isolated environment. Uh, it, today, of course, you have roads, but uh, for most of the park's history, it was very isolated. Um, uh, you know, I met people in Torrey when I first moved there and in Fruta who remembered electricity. And running water coming to the park in their times. So uh, it, it was uh, an isolated uh, environment that demanded a lot of the people who settled it.
0: So you ended up staying a few years, right?
2: I was there from 74 to 78, and then I returned 12 years ago to retire here.
0: Mm-hmm. So was it the, you know, that initial experience? Was it the landscape? Was it the lifestyle? You said you, you know. You... <sighs>
2: I think it was my experience there. My wife and I, uh, actually uh, ran the Sleeping Rainbow Guest Ranch, which was in the middle of the park at that time. It's now the uh, the Capitol Reef Field Station. And uh, we were responsible for growing a lot of the, the food that we ate. It, uh, we had never heard the, the term farm-to-table, but uh, the Guest Ranch was sort of a farm-to-table operation because it was simply f- so far to get any kind of uh, groceries. So we grew a lot of our own food. We were responsible for our own irrigation water, our own drinking water. And as I Write in the book, which was actually a uh, the the beginning of of, uh, my book, "Canaries on the Rim," uh, excerpted in "Capital Reef Reader." uh, We our our previous education uh, did not uh, underline for us all of the bodily uh, connections we have with our environment, but at the ranch. Uh, we really learn that uh, uh, our our food comes from from soil, our our airshed, and our water uh, become us, flesh and blood. And um, I always say my my original edu- education at an elite university in the east, the bumper sticker could have been that Cartesian expression, I think. Therefore, I am. I think, but the bumper sticker from my experience at Capitol Reef running the Sleeping Rainbow was, I stink. Therefore where <laughs> I am. It was a very grounding experience, and I think I carried that experience with me years later when I became involved in environmental work, because I knew how we embodied our environments. I knew what was at stake.
0: And that was, those were lessons learned at Capitol Reef. Um, yes. I, I want to follow up on that a little later in the, the program. Uh, Stephen Trimble, what uh, what was your encounter with this this land? Your, your first oh, encounter.
1: I, I came to Capitol Reef to work as a seasonal park naturalist when I was 24 years old in 1975. Uh, I had grown up in Colorado. I had been visiting the canyon country, both with my family and with my buddies in college. And I had already worked as a ranger at Arches, and I knew Arches and Canyonlands pretty well. But I didn't know Capitol Reef. And when I got the job here, I drove in and I was just overwhelmed by the wildness and the grandeur and the size and the spectacular scenery and so I spent a season here as a seasonal ranger and then I came back a couple years later to work on a little booklet for the Park Natural History Association and you know one of my jobs at that time was to understand the park which meant reading the park literature so I started reading Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner and all the the people who were my mentors and elders who taught me what the spirit of this place was taught me the Geology and the history and the biology told me the stories of the pioneers in the Little Mormon Village of Fruta and that ranch on Pleasant Creek that Chip was talking about. So it turns out I started actually researching the Capitol Reef Reader 45 years ago and started photographing in the park. That I something I've done as as sort of my my personal work, my uh, personal journey as a photographer, continuously ever since. So. In the book i was able to include some of my own writing along with about a hundred photographs that incorporate more than 40 years of work in this place and uh, it's just such a treat and a privilege and an honor to have the chance to work with all that material from all these years
0: i want to get into some of the history and some of the issues uh, but to close out this segment i want to ask each of you what this, what this land, what this particular uh, country means to to each of you. I'll start with Chip Ward. What is, the, obviously, you 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 returned there, right? You are <laughs> retired to Tory. What, yes, what does I this mean to you?
2: Circle, uh- We started out when we were very young at the Sleeping Rainbow uh, in the middle of the park, and then uh, we, uh, like a lot of people still do today down here in Wayne County, we we went north uh, for graduate school and careers and raised our kids, uh, but we we came back and retired here. So we're coming full circle, and I think it's only appropriate because uh, our time here was very formative. Uh, We learned a lot of valuable lessons here, not just about the landscape and how ecosystems work and our, our place in the, in the, in the larger world uh, but also we learned a lot about ourselves about our own capacity for resilience and uh, and Capitol Reef is still here to teach those lessons. I mean one of the, uh, the, uh, the opportunities you have to go out into the backcountry in a place like this is that um, uh, uh, Steve Howe has a nice uh, excerpt in the Capitol Reef Reader talking about, he's a local guide and he says it's uh, there's many opportunities for going off trail um and uh, it's you know it's it's not like google maps where <laughs> a pleasant voice tells you to turn left and turn right you have to assess and discover and think and and, and rely on past experience it's it's a more demanding landscape and i find that that's uh, when i'm out in it i feel more alive
0: stephen Trimble, uh same question to you what is what, obviously this this landscape has had an effect on you and you've Return to again and again. What, uh, what does it mean to you?
1: That's a big question, obviously. Um, you know, I think each of us ends up having a home landscape. People who grow up on the ocean often want to return over and over again. They're never feeling quite complete, quite at home, unless they're walking along a beach. People who grow up in mountains or at the base of mountains feel that same way about big mountains on the skyline, wherever they live. People who grew up on the prairie need that space and that sky. And uh, I grew up in the West. My dad was a geologist, and I saw a lot of the West and travels with him. And I was able to spend a lot of time climbing in the Rocky Mountains in college and visiting the deserts and visiting the canyon country. But I really responded to the slick rock country, the canyons of the Colorado River, in some sort of primordial way that overwhelmed my reactions to every other landscape. It's that sculptural, sensual slick rock of Navajo sandstone. It's those big red Wingate sandstone cliffs that make me feel joyful, that make me feel connected to the earth and enrich my life with these incredibly graphic sculptures that I can photograph and think about and write about. And there's really no other place with quite the same variety as Capitol Reef. And I, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had that assignment. I had the opportunity to work here as a ranger in my formative years, in my 20s. And this became my landscape. You know, a couple of years ago, there was an advertising campaign during the centennial of the National Park Service asking everyone to choose their park, which is your park. And I've known for a very long time that Capitol Reef is my park. Uh, My wife and I now have a home in Torrey. And when the University of Utah Press came to me and asked me if I would edit this, this reader about Capitol Reef, it was really obvious that I was going to say yes. I was not going to let anyone else do this book. <laughs>
0: yeah, and you say there's a, there's a rich treasure trove here, and you've you've selected many of the, the pieces here. Let's take a break, and when we come back, uh, much more to talk about uh, the history and, uh, I guess, the, the the present and future of uh, the Capitol Reef National Park. We have with us the editor of this volume, Stephen Trimble. It's the Capitol Reef a Reader from University of Utah Press and also Chip Ward joins us and an excerpt from him is included and he has uh, uh, retired to uh, Torrey after several years ago living uh, there. Uh, More following this break. I'm Katie Swain, the Director of Membership at Utah Public Radio, and I'm so happy to report that thanks to so many of you, we have reached and even surpassed our $50,000 fundraising goal for this fall. For many of you, this meant increasing a sustaining gift or making an additional contribution. Thank you for stepping up when we needed you. For others, this meant donating for the very first time and becoming not just a listener, but a member and a part of what makes everything you hear possible. Thank you for taking that step and making the conscious decision to not just listen to UPR and hope that others will do the important work of supporting it, but to join the UPR membership and become an active part of making this all possible. To everyone who gave and supported, thank you for keeping UPR strong. We remain committed to the future of public radio and know that with help from you, that future is bright. On
2: the next Putumayo World Music Hour,
1: a Thanksgiving feast of songs about
0: food and drink. Please, mister, don't touch me tomato. Please don't you touch me tomato. Touch me yummy pumpkin potato. For goodness sake,
2: don't touch me tomato.
1: I'm Dan Storper.
2: And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Pack your bags and join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in July. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a series of uh, National Park readers uh, a out and uh, or end in uh, progress and the uh, latest is the Capital Reef Reader. It's edited by Stephen Trimble and he's joined us. Chip Ward has an excerpt uh, included in this uh, volume as well and he's included in the volume. Uh, gentlemen I want to uh, get into uh, before I get into the fascinating history and there is some very fascinating history. I want to talk about present and, and future issues and uh, including tourism and uh, growth and and you know, land use disputes. Uh, I want to get into this by talking about a fascinating character, Lert Knee. Is that how you pronounce his name? Because yeah, just, Lert- just, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So let me start with you, Chip Ward. You you knew Lert Nee and his his wife, right?
2: Yes, uh, uh, they leased the ranch to us, and they lived on the hill. With, <laughs> excuse me, lived on the hill with us and ran our jeep tours off while we were doing the guest ranch.
0: Uh, fascinating character, and uh, his wife's name is Alice, was it?
2: Uh, yes, uh, his his wife Alice, uh, who uh, joined him, I think, about the time that he turned the ranch into a guest ranch.
0: You descri- I think you was Chip Ward. You described her as a—she's uh, assigned herself as a one-woman Peace Corps representative to the Navajo Nation, and then—
2: yeah, that was in the 50s. Alice was uh, a nurse during World War II, and she was in the Philippines. And so uh, she had a very adventurous uh, spirit, and she was a very self-reliant woman. And uh, she uh, lived in Southern California, but she she traveled frequently throughout the Navajo Reservation. And because of her nursing skills, she was often uh, called upon to, to help out. And she did that, and this was before she met Lert and, and moved to the Sleeping Rainbow in Capitol Reef.
0: Of course, they had a long history together, um, and the, the the park took over the the, the ranch, right? But the, the they were granted life residency.
2: Yes. Uh, they, when they first uh, established the ranch, which was actually an older ranch that uh, that Lurt bought from Levi Bullard uh, here locally, uh, they were outside the monument. The monument, uh, Capitol Reef monument, was much smaller than the park. The monument was established in thirty-seven. I think Lurt showed up probably uh, in the early 1940s. Uh, and then in 1971, when the park was expanded, he found himself totally surrounded by the park. Um, the park, uh, service had a policy of trying to buy out in-holders, and eventually, uh, as Lurt and Alice gave up the guest ranch and became older, they decided to, uh, they wanted to live there for the rest of their lives, but they they did sell it to the
0: park. Um, so Stephen Trimble uh, included in the volume, it's a piece called Eating the View. This is based on interviews by Bradford Fry and yourself. Um, and Lurt, and I, I want to talk just briefly about this Somewhat tangential but related. Um, Lertney's sister was related into Monument Valley, right?
1: Right. So, th- this is actually one of my favorite sections in the Capitol Reef Reader. Uh, Pleasant Creek, that ranch that Chip's been talking about, actually drew the first permanent resident to the Capitol Reef area. In 1882, uh, F. Hanks started a ranch there that became Floral Ranch, his family home. And so in the reader, I have a section where I have excerpts from a whole bunch of different people that lived in that spot, each of them responding differently to the landscape. Uh, first, a story about the Hanks family, written by F. Hanks' grand- grandson and nephew years later, that kind of uh, fictionalizes a little bit a moment when the federal marshals came looking for men who were married to more than one wife. And... Uh, those men, of course, went hiding in the cliffs above Floral Ranch. And that kind of captures the personality of F. Hanks. And as Chip said, eventually the Bullards, Levi and Billy Bullard bought the ranch a couple of owners later and on the ranch in the nineteen thirties. And I was able to interview Billy Bullard in the nineteen nineties and hear her stories about riding horses up and down Pleasant Creek and racing the Model Ts who were headed for the mail and that sort of thing. And uh, then she sold the ranch, the, the Bullard sold the ranch to Lurt, and he uh, began living there in 1939, and his sister was married to Harry Goulding in Monument Valley, who was already starting to take advantage of tourism and attracting John Ford to film John Wayne Westerns in Monument Valley. And Lurt thought, Lurt thought that was a great idea and was looking for a place near something that either could be a national park it was already a small national monument, and drove his way down into Pleasant Creek and, and bought the ranch and lived there for all those years. So I have learned stories based on these interviews as the next layer of stories about the ranch, and then Chip's piece, and then three totally charming short pieces by English language learner kids who came down with Utah Valley University writing workshops and responded to this landscape that was completely alien to them. Uh, Those three pieces are by young people from Saudi Arabia, Mali, and Ukraine. And so I I just love that sequence. It's really fun to read all those different responses to the landscape from people over a very long period of time.
0: I want to just read a couple sentences from uh, uh, Kadida Sabu uh, Dumbia. I hope I'm getting her name right. Uh, From Mali um an essay called land of rest and she says here is a land of rest here i can hear those birds and understand that they're singing of happiness and pride and she goes on so that's uh, interesting to have their reaction to this to this uh, landscape um i wonder uh, if you could explain to me the, the, so the the particular uh, piece here is called eating the view well, what does that refer to
1: so uh when lurt bought the ranch from levi bullard uh, Lert said, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of this place, and it's scenery. That's how I'm going to make my living. And Levi Bullard said to him, well, you know, Lert, you can't eat the view, and uh, you got to make a living some other way. And Lert said, well, you come back in a few years. And Levi did come back in a few years after Lert had built the guest ranch and looked around, and there were a bunch of cars parked at the guest ranch, and Lert was clearly doing very well. And Levi had to eat his words. So that's, that's that story. Actually, my, fa- my favorite story from Lert Nee uh, dates right after World War II, uh, during the uranium boom in the 50s, which is another layer of history in Capitol Reef, when a prospector wandered into the guest range, very excited because he had found radioacti- radioactivity everywhere. He thought that he'd struck it rich. And Lert sort of laughed and said, yeah, but you forget that we're downwind from the nuclear tests both in the, the Nevada test site and clear out in the Pacific and that's fallout that has rained down on the black boulders of Capitol Reef and the rains will wash it away in a couple of days but there's no uranium it's strictly uh, n- nuclear nuclear fallout from very far away which is horrifying but a great story
0: yeah <laughs> yeah both both yes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about tourism. Uh, Chip Ward you and your essay, you talk about that. Uh, You say that when you were there in the 70s, this was, uh, at least these deserts were still uh, relatively unknown. Um, And the hordes of German vacationers, American mountain bikers, camera buffs you can find on any sunny day today had not shown up yet. Maybe you're talking about the 50s at that point. Um, But they have shown up at this point.
2: Yeah, I would say that um, uh, the the park's uh, main issue right now is simply uh, the number of people who love it. Uh, Park visitation has pretty much doubled in the last five years. I think it was 650,000 five years ago. It's about 1.2 million now. And, of course, most of that congestion is uh, in the Fruta District, which is where the visitor center is, the Gifford House, the picnic area and all and uh it's very visible i mean the, the numbers are one metric but you know try to find a parking spot and that's that's another measure Uh, And because it's a historic district, it's very difficult to expand parking lots or expand the visitor center. Uh, I think the park is thinking about that now. They're sort of in the conceptual phase where they're thinking about what their options are. But it's it's a lot more crowded. I think about five years ago, there was a a holiday. I can't remember if it was Labor Day or Easter. And everybody in town was saying, my gosh, did you see all the trailhead parking lots were full? People were parking in the road, and we'd never seen that before. Uh, today, it's, it's pretty much a daily experience.
0: Uh, if you just joined us, by the way, we're talking about the Capitol Reef Reader. It's part of the National Park Reader Series. It's published by University of Utah Press. We have the editor, Stephen Trimble, with us, and uh, Chip Ward has joined us as well. He has an excerpt in, in the book as well. Uh, so, Stephen Trimble, you talk about, um, in one of your pieces, uh, Chapter 44, Capitol Reef Illustrated, um, you uh, you say you've often quoted Philip Hyde's preface to Slick Rock, where he works through, you know, we need advocates. If you love this land, you need advocates, and so it can help if you publish photographs and, and such, but there's a danger there as well. People will be attracted, and uh, land might get overrun, I guess. That's
1: right. Yeah, w- one really interesting aspect of the history of Capitol Reef is that it's right at the heart of some of those uh, big conservation battles. You know, the battle over whether or not to pave the Bird Trail. The, it's right on the edge of the Escalante Wilderness, which, of course, leads us toward the controversy over uh, President Trump's evisceration of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which borders Capitol Reef. And in the 1960s and 70s, the Sierra Club, through that fray, what the director of the Sierra Club, David Brower, called Battle Books, big, gorgeous books of photographs to show people across the country what these remote places look like, these places that belong to all Americans. And he used two photographers, largely Philip Hyde and Elliot Porter, who were large-format color photographers in books. Philip Hyde's book Slick Rock, to show this country. And there was a section in Slick Rock about the Waterpocket fold that uh, at that point had been, uh, the, the small national monument had been expanded to a larger national monument, but was still threatened. And it was before that that monument proclaimed by presidential proclamation using the Antiquities Act became a full-fledged national park. And Philip Hyde, in that uh, preface to Slickrock, wrote a paragraph I've, I've often quoted, and I include in this short piece in the reader where I run through very quickly some of the artists who have visited Capitol Reef over the years. Here's what Philip Hyde wrote. The focus of this book is on a part of Earth that is still almost as it was before man began to tinker with the land. Telling thousands about it to get their help in what must be a prolonged struggle to keep it wild is a calculated risk. I have some hesitation in showing more people its delightful beauty. Hesitation born of the fear that this place, like so many others of great beauty in our country, might be loved to death, even before being developed to death. So, if our book means moves you to visit the place yourself sometime, first make sure you add your voice to those seeking its protection. And those those wide wise words have guided a lot of my work as well. You can't keep these places secret, as Chip said. Capitol Reef has doubled in visitation in the last five years to 1.3 million people each year, and most of them simply drive US 24, uh, Utah State Highway 24 right through the park past the old village of Fruta. maybe they drive the scenic drive. There's still a lot of backcountry, but the park has to figure out how to manage those people. And uh, the visitor center was designed for a visitation of about 250,000. And, and uh, the park is underfunded like every national park. And it's a it's a challenge. It's a, it's a real challenge that all of us need to participate in. And Bring good ideas to the park about how to proceed.
0: Uh, Stephen I'll alert you. I'd, I'd love to have you read uh, at least part of uh, page three thirty-four uh, in your book uh, near the, the end, in your conclusion. Uh, while you're going there, at Chip Ward, I wonder w- what it is you have. You're, I guess, you're seeing um, increasing use, especially in the most used parts of the park. Still, some backcountry, I guess, where you can find a little bit of solitude. Um, but, but, how best to manage that?
2: Question. I think that, uh, yes, most. Uh, let me be clear, Capitol Reef is still a beautiful and unique landscape. And it, you're still uh, capable of having some of those really unique experiences there, especially if you get into the backcountry, because most people don't walk very far. But even in the backcountry, there's more use and different kinds of use. There's more people who are canyoneering and exploring than ever before. And uh, that means that parts of the park that were never disturbed before are now getting visitation. And also it increases the the number of search and rescue, stranded motorists, and so forth. Um, And I think the park service here is sort of maxed out. They can't really increase the number of patrols. So the effect on the staff is that they're they're usually exhausted by the end of the year, and uh, they're simply overwhelmed. They are now, I think, crafting a backcountry travel policy so that they can figure out a, a little bit how to keep people safe in the backcountry and manage it.
0: Uh, Stephen Trimble, I uh, was interested. Uh, your conclusion—you puzzle through some of these things, and and you you come out with kind of a hopeful note. I have to say,
1: yeah. And uh, you know, I should make it clear that the book, the, the reader includes a lot of pure celebration of heart. You know, they're naturalists reveling in uh, in wildflowers, what Ellen Malloy calls slick rotica, and they're. Writers standing at the rim of Boulder Mountain, glorying at the view, and their canyoneers and and uh, early explorers and people who hired guides to take them into the backcountry and you know, there are all kinds of ways to look at this park. But Capitol Reef is is a controversial place. You know the the park was expanded without a lot of consultation with the local people. Uh, back in the '60s, the park superintendent was asked to draw a map. Expanding the Little National Monument, that dated to the 1930s, by sixfold, and he um, he actually couldn't ask his secretary to help because she was married to the president of the Wayne County Cattlemen's Association. Hmm. So he had his wife type up his proposal and send it off to Secretary of Interior Stuart Udall. And things like that did not endear the Park Service and its employees to the local people in Wayne County who had lived here from the 19 from the 1800s and. Felt kind of like it was their land, even though it was national, national lands. Um, and so there's there's this long history of a little bit of tension between the park and the local folks in Wayne County. Uh, and so that leads toward my trying to figure out how to understand that and how to bridge those those divides as tourism increases, as the possibility of making a living as a rancher decreases you know I have all those perspectives and excerpts in in the book which you know includes almost 50 people and i because i'm an editor i get to make the choice of ending the book with and with an excerpt from my own book uh, bargaining for eden which includes a section about my family buying land just a couple of miles from the park boundary and trying to figure out what it means to be a landowner in addition to a, an urban pilgrim to the utah wilderness so here are a few paragraphs from that that excerpt that that you've identified, Tom. Old timers and newcomers, the amenity migrants, as the sociologists call them, who have lived in rural communities for five years or less, show similar levels of concern for the environment. Newcomers bond first with the landscape, reinforcing the community of place. Old timers are more invested in social networks, the community of interests in rural Utah. Membership in the LDS church guarantees instant connection But the expected culture clash doesn't pop out from statistics. Strong opinions exist at the ends of the curve. In the middle, communities harbor common ground. One friend who moved to Wayne County from the northeast, in love with the enchanted wildness of the Red Rock landscape, found herself stranded at midlife in an isolated place that she wasn't sure she'd actively chosen, living behind what one local calls the Alfalfa Curtain. At the end of one long winter, she admitted that she'd become obsessed with the question, how do you mitigate regret? Our whole community needs to address this question before we've taken too many actions that might require mitigation, before we approve too many steps toward homogeneity that will be cause for regret. I can feel the possibilities out there if we avoid these mistakes. I can picture a future filled with thoughtful dialogue, tantalizing us with hope. Rural Utah has always been a culture of villages, but more than 300 homes now lie scattered outside the three Torrey Valley communities. Noisy newcomer woes, an acronym that a friend coined here that stands for wealthy, overeducated, spoiled brats, have been growing in numbers and shifting the culture. I can join the Wayne County community now without feeling quite so conspicuous. Indeed, one progressive grassroots land use coalition has been working on threats to public lands in Wayne County since the mid-1990s, and I was pleased to sign on as a member. Don't let me make too much of this. I perch on the rim of rural life without grappling with its most difficult daily realities, but I long for a chance to cooperate for the satisfaction of protecting and ensuring a future that the community imagines together. I hope to work from what some call the radical center the place where all factions come to talk. If we can move beyond our trenches, I'm convinced that we can find shared values in our mutual opposition to distant corporate and political powers, refusing to listen to the people who cherish the land. Hmm.
0: I want to get a reaction, uh, Chip Ward. You've you've been involved in environmental battles um, for over several years. What do you think about this idea of Stephen Trimble's radical center? Do you you share a hope that uh, local peoples can come together?
2: Oh, I, th- I think that they can. Uh, there's a l- always a lot of noises, noise at the edges, you might say. Uh, Wayne County's uh, main division is that we have two different economies here. If you go up to Loa and Fremont, it's still very much... Um, uh, tied to ranching and the, uh, the idea of extraction as being the, the means to, the, to the, the end that we all want, which is a better way of life. Uh, the gateway communities, Torrey, Teesdale, and Grover, are uh, really thriving and are uh, at this point paying the bills for Wayne County. Uh, and uh, it, it's a different, uh, a different culture here. We see the land as more of uh, an asset. If it's healthy and we have access to it and people want to go there, uh, we don't we don't think of extraction. So these two cultures, these two economies are, are bound to rub up against each other and whenever you have that kind of uh, uh, situation, you have a certain amount of turmoil and tension. You can also have a certain amount of creativity, too. I mean, in, in nature, that's called an ecotone where two different uh, ways of life rub up against each other and you get some amazing things that go on there. So I, I am hopeful and I think there's a lot of efforts underway to do that. Uh, the local Entrada Institute has been trying very uh, much to tie the culture of the county together, and uh, there's a lot of uh, very thoughtful citizen energy right now.
0: Uh, what do you think about that, Stephen Trimbold? Obviously, you're you hoping that this radical center can produce results. Do uh, you remain helpful?
1: Yeah, I, I think we just need to get out on the land together. That's key. The, the reader actually might give people a way in to find that that common ground, and, and understand that there is a shared love for this place that that runs from people that grew up in Fruta that have enormous nostalgia for that place and write about it, to the people who are moving here now who just fall in love with the land. And I think that the common ground is walk down a ditch bank together, uh, you know, kicking the, kicking the, uh, the dirt clods and working to clear that ditch together in, in each spring, uh, the canal that runs through Torrey, uh, take a hike together. The the Entrada Institute that Chip mentioned is actually pretty key to that. Um, started years ago in the home of Ward Roy Lance, who was a writer who came to Torrey to retire and just fell in love with the place. Um, wrote about it, <clears throat> excuse me, and eventually his home passed on to become the headquarters of the Entrada Institute, which does a lecture series and has resident artists and artists um, intersects the, the pieces in the book in several places. I have a, the lyrics from a song that, that uh, the musician Kate McLeod wrote about Fruta in the old days that she wrote when she was an artist-in-residence here. I have a piece from Ward Roylance Lance uh, talking about Capitol Reef, the introduction to his 1979 uh, book about the park. And a number of the writers in the book have had some connection to and try to come here to speak. It's, it's a place where we can go and, and just listen to people celebrating this place. And many of the people who come to those lectures are people who have moved in more recently, but there's a scattering of old-timers as well. And, and Trotta has featured Dwight Williams, a wonderful rancher, tells great stories. His family always comes to hear him speak. Actually, I have a photograph of Dwight Williams in the book. So we just need to keep talking to each other. That's the key. And almost all of the controversies in the past have come when We did not talk to each other enough. It's always better to have way too many people at the table than not enough.
0: I want to take a break, and when we come back, uh, by the way, Stephen Trubot, I'd I'd love to have you read uh, Kate McLeod's uh, piece. That's a beautiful piece. Um, But uh, before we go to break, I want to get in this email from Steve. Uh, Steve says I grew up in the east so that sort of landscape is my home landscape. After a lifetime spent in verdant environments in Europe uh, in Europe and eastern US I moved west but not until I was well into my 50s. So the beauties that you're discussing this morning are for me uh, probably remain so until I die an acquired taste. Uh, some years back, along with a group of UPR staff, friends, and supporters, I took a hiking tour of Capitol Reef with the then-head ranger. You weren't on this hike, Tom, he says. He made an observation that has uh, stuck with me since and which uh, this morning's in conversation evokes. He felt sorry for geologists working in the east, he said, because in places like Capitol Reef, Earth's geology uh, is magnificently arrayed. But in the eastern United States, it's hidden under verdure rarely on display, and even then owing to dislocations such as blasting rocks to build a bridge or tunnel. That's uh, Steve. Uh, Chip Ward, do you have a reaction to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's true. I took geology when I was going to school in Boston, and we talked about what was under that housing development over there. Uh, So it is sort of hidden. You know, it's interesting, though, if you look up, the same thing can be said of the sky, I mean, try to uh, try to study astronomy uh, in uh, in New York City. You can't see the sky here. Uh, people have the unique experience of actually looking up and seeing constellations that they may have only read about or heard about, and seeing the Milky Way. And there's very few places in the country where you can do that anymore. It's it's really a humbling, awesome experience.
0: Stephen Treble, uh, reaction. Your reaction to uh, Steve's experiences.
1: Well, I'm going to react by reading you a couple of paragraphs from, from the reader, because so many of these, these paragraphs are, are about exactly that, how do you respond to these rocks. And these two short excerpts kind of capture the, the span of writing in the reader. First, Clarence Dutton, John Wesley Powell's uh, man, his geology uh, expert who was sent to Boulder Mountain to try to figure out the geology of the high plateaus in 1880. Uh, Clarence Dutton looked out from the rim of Boulder Mountain and wrote, It is a sublime panorama. The heart of the inner plateau country is spread out before us in a bird's eye view. It is a maze of cliffs and terraces lined off with stratification of crumbling buttes, red and white domes, rock platforms gashed with profound canyons, burning plains barren even of sage, all glowing with bright color and flooded with blazing sunlight. Everything visible tells of ruin and decay. It is the extreme of desolation, the blankest solitude, a superlative desert. That's where the reader starts. And well over 100 years later, Linda Elizabeth Peterson came to that same view, a Michigan writer, and wrote in an essay included in in an anthology in 2007 of women writing about the Southwest, about her visit to the rim of Boulder Mountain, looking over Capitol Reef, uh, when she was spending some time in Salt Lake City in 1980, and um, her friend Don took her down to southern Utah. And she writes, Our trip was more than 20 years ago, but in memory I still stand at the top of Boulder Mountain, the pine-scented wind in my face. My eyes sweep across the water pocket fold framed by the Henry Mountains, hovering in light clouds far off in the east and then down into the Escalante River drainage at my feet to the south. Nothing, not the Rockies, not the Tetons, not even the Grand Canyon, has prepared me. I'm suddenly at the edge of my known world. What is this? Rock, all rock, naked and alive, rolling and undulating, thrusting upward and falling away, twisting and tumbling It shimmers in the hot, clear June sky. From this height, my gaze can only skim the white and reddish-orange tops of the ridges and domes, and the canyons cutting randomly and feverishly through the stone, take in their chaos and mystery, utter wildness scoured and scored into the rock. My midwesterner's mind, shaped by flatness and the square-mile grid, is undone. Safe, comfortable categories release and fragment. My breathing, when it returns, is quick and shallow, my limbs loose I lean into dawn. If I say anything, it is God. If I know anything, it is that I'm surrendering to this edge, falling into this land, already filling my hands with it. Hmm.
0: Beautiful. Uh, in fact, uh, serendipity there. I was going to have you uh, read something from Linda Elizabeth Peterson. You've chosen that. Uh, it struck my imagination because she came from Michigan, another verdant. and and, and fell in love with this landscape. Uh, Well, let's take a brief break and come back with a very brief uh, final segment with uh, Stephen Trimble and uh, Chip Ward. We're talking about the Capitol Reef Reader from University of Utah Press. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Hampton Inn and Suites, offering Cache Valley getaway packages, including room, dinner, and breakfast. Reservations available on getawaypackage.com. This is Kate Salinas with some upcoming Utah events. If you're looking for some art, go ahead and visit the NEMA Collection at Utah State University, featuring Sky Above, Earth Below, a history of Western landscape photography. That's at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art from now until June 30th, 2020. The Repertory Dance Theater's home season fall performance will be held on November 21st through the 23rd at the Janae Wagner Theater in Salt Lake City. St. George Musical Theater presents Irving Berlin's Holiday Inn, November 21st through December 21st, with performances at 7.30 p.m. at the Historic Opera House. And Uinta Basin Orchestra and Chorus will host their Christmas Spectacular Saturday, December 7th, with performances at 2 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. in the Vernal Middle School Auditorium. For more information, go ahead and visit our community calendar page at upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in July. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Stephen Trimble, who has edited uh, a new volume in the uh, National Parks Readers series from University of Utah Press. This is the Capital Reef Reader. And we have with us Chip Ward as well, who uh, uh, has a piece excerpted in this volume. Um, we have uh, about to. Four or five minutes left in the conversation. The time has flown by, gentlemen. Um, so let me start with uh, Chip Ward. Uh, kind of come to, to final uh, things we'd like to say here. Um, I was fascinated, uh, Chip Ward, by the lessons in this. Uh, you say you learned lessons. And we talked about water, for example, and and interconnectedness that you learned out in this country. Uh, what else do you think you learned?
2: What. Well, I think I've learned over time that um, it's not enough to simply enjoy a, a beautiful and unique place like Capitol Reef. Um, time marches on, and uh, people uh, continue to develop and grow, and uh, uh, so does society. And, uh the dangers now are are uh, being uh, the, the park being overwhelmed, uh, and probably on the outskirts, uh, drilling, uh, ATV uh, increased use, uh, backcountry use is um, is starting to show. Um, I would just urge people who love this area to get involved, join a conservation organization, find out what the issues are, write a letter, speak up, show up at a meeting, uh, do the kinds of things that we need to keep these kinds of beautiful. Wildlands, uh, in, in whole and available to all of us for whatever lessons that we want to learn when we go there.
0: We do have uh, about two or three minutes left. Stephen Trimble will give you the last word. Uh, what would you like to say here at the end of the conversation?
1: Well, since we're mostly talking about my book, The Capital Reef Reader, I think I'll read the last couple of paragraphs in my intro to the book, which I think will answer your question, Tom, about what I've learned here. I, I finished with a story. I pondered the ironies of 21st-century Capitol Reef on a recent journey with my family to the rim of Hall Mesa in the southern backcountry of the park. We drove our Subaru south from Highway 24 onto Notum Road. Pavement gave way to dirt. We wound our way through fields of late-summer sunflowers near Bitter Creek Divide, past the Bird Trail and the Post, and took four more turns onto ever-rougher roads. We were 60 miles from the Capitol Reef Visitor Center. We'd seen no other vehicles. We parked when the road got too rough and walked for a half hour to the rim of Hulls, above Halls Creek Narrows, where a peregrine falcon took off from an eyrie on a thousand-foot cliff and sailed off into space, screaming at us and warning. What place could be wilder? Ninety-three percent of the park falls in officially mapped primitive, essentially wild and undeveloped, and semi-primitive, more frequent roads or evidence of grazing zones. The Park Service manages this backcountry as wilderness. Capitol Reef has world-class dark night skies. What place could be more remote? We settled on a rocky perch for lunch and discovered that in this place where so few venture, we had cell phone service. On a whim, we called family in San Diego. Guess where we are. Our next question could have been, in 21st century Capitol Reef, what defines remote? Where truly are we? What decisions will we make to plan effectively for a future Capitol Reef linked to issues far beyond the park, the looming climate catastrophe, deteriorating regional air quality, the conflict over President Donald Trump's decision to drastically reduce the size of nearby Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National monuments and a sensible accommodation to a Utah population that will double by 2050. We must consider preservation and enjoyment our need for refuge and solitude, the conservation imperative, working always within the minuscule National Park Service budget. We will make these decisions most wisely if we know everything we can about Capitol Reef. Ideas, knowledge, and resilience lie within the rootedness of native peoples, in the affectionate memories of longtime locals who love their home, in the sharp observations of naturalists and scientists, in the professional expertise of park staff, In the creative responses to the landscape by writers, photographers, and artists, in the backcountry puzzles worked out by hikers, these people know Capitol Reef. Their stories await spilling from this book, and so, as Ed Abbey says, come on in and see for yourself. Hmm.
0: That is Stephen Trimble, reading uh, from his introduction to the Capitol Reef Reader. This volume is in the National Park Reader Series from University of Utah Press, edited by Stephen Trimble, and we've... uh, Had him along with uh, Chip Ward, whose piece is included here as well on the program. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening. Thank you, Tom. Just a delight, as always, to talk to you.
0: And you as well. Thanks for listening today.
2: This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.